going to be doing this weekend, uh, I just felt that uh, due to the theme that he was asking, I, I felt that this would uh, certainly fit into what it is that we're trying to do here. I'm going to be studying from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible handy and you want to open it to Luke chapter 15, this is, of course, where we're going to be uh, taking our study. But I, I want to begin by just noting with you a verse that is found in the middle of that chapter somewhat. In verse 24 of Luke 15, we find a man saying, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now, the reason I read that verse is because of, of the word lost, L-O-S-T, that's found in this verse. It applies to a young person. It applies to a young man. It applies to this man's youngest son. And he looked back on the life that this boy had been living for a while, and he said, you know, during that lifetime that my boy was living this way, he was lost. And when we look at that word lost, we have to think about it from the standpoint of what it does to one's emotion when someone or something very dear to him is missing or is lost. It is something that generates uh, alarm or feelings of alarm in our hearts. If we were to lose a, a ring or some, uh, uh, some family heirloom, it causes a sense of alarm. Well, here is a man who lost a sign. And it's going to be something that causes more than just an alarm. Now, let's walk away from that for just a moment, and let's kind of look at the context of Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, we find Jesus telling three stories of lost things. All that Jesus deals with in this chapter centers around this idea of lost. He tells the first story about a man who had a hundred sheep. And Jesus said that this man lost one of his sheep. So what does he do? He goes out, or he leaves the 99, and he goes out and he searches diligently until he finds that sheep. And upon finding that sheep, he rejoices and he encourages his neighbors to rejoice with him. I have found my sheep that was lost. And they begin to rejoice. Now, the point that Jesus is making is that just as this man is rejoicing over the finding of that sheep, Heaven rejoices when there is a lost sinner that comes to the Lord. And I'm not at all surprised because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19 and verse 10. Well, Jesus segues into a second story. He tells about a woman who had ten coins and she lost one of those coins. Now, chances are this would have been one of the decorative coins on her headdress that she wore. Very important to her. So upon losing that coin, she sweeps the house diligently until she finds it. She rejoices, calls her neighbors to rejoice with her, and heaven rejoices when a sinner makes his or her way to the Lord. But then Jesus tells the third story. And you know why I think this is important? Because I don't know if there's any sheep herders here today. And I don't know what you would do if you lost one of your sheep. You had 199 left. You know, you may just... Uh, you know, chalk it off and write it off. I don't know. And I don't know what you would do if you lost a coin, even if it was a decorative coin or even a, a, an heirloom. I don't know how important that is to you, but I can tell you one thing. The third story that Jesus tells is important to us because it tells us a story of a boy that is lost to the world. It tells us about a man who lost his son to the world. Now, I realize that this idea of lost 
you know, when we talk about young people being lost, it's an idea that is not politically correct to talk about. If we see a young person that is living in a way that he or she ought not be living, very often we'll say, well, you know, that person is, or that young person is just maladjusted, or that person is immature, or that person is just trying to find him and herself. In reality, when you're dealing with the young people that are lost, you're dealing with young people that have rebelled against God and against heaven and against home. It is a very important matter. You know, the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 23 that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So when you're dealing with a rebellious attitude, you're dealing with sin. If you're dealing with a young person that says, I'm, I'm not interested in serving God, or you're dealing with a young person that says, I'm not interested in family values, you're dealing with rebellion. You're not dealing with immaturity. You're not dealing with a, a lack of self-esteem. You're dealing with a heart of rebellion. And it's high time that parents recognized and understood that. It is rebellious behavior. Now, what I want to do is I'm going to, I'm going to examine the story that we often refer to as the story of the prodigal son. And I'm going to do it from the standpoint of rebellion in the heart of young people. And I'm going to have five points in this study. And I'll tell you what they are. And they all center around this idea of coming. In the first place, we're going to find this young man, point number one, he comes to his father. Point number two, he comes to a far country. Point number three, he comes to be in need while he's in this far country. And point number four, while he's in this far country, he comes to himself. And then finally, we're going to end our study by getting at the fifth point, that he now comes home. And so that's the circle. That's the journey of a rebel. He comes to his father. He comes to a far country. He comes to be in need. He comes to himself, and then he comes back home. And so, if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to study with me this afternoon on the story of a, uh, of a rebel and how we're going to follow the journey of that rebel. And in doing this, in doing this, I want you to stop and see if there's anybody that you might recognize in the story that we're studying. Now let's begin by looking at verses, or at, at verses 11 and 12 as we see in the first point, here he comes to his father. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Now, I don't know what you think about when you read those two verses, but I think very often we study the parable of the prodigal son, we just sort of read over those verses, and well, that just kind of sets the scene. Here a man has two children, has two sons, and it's the younger son that's going to leave home and become the prodigal or the wasteful son. But I want you to stop and think about this from the standpoint of a father. Here's a man who had two sons. One of his sons comes to him. And I tell you, I, I, my wife and I have been living in an empty nest for a long time. Our three children are middle-aged, and they're out on their own, and they have children. But I tell you what, in looking back when my son and my two daughters still lived at home, that's one of the things that I love about them coming in 
either from a school function or a date or whatever they were doing because they would often come in and they would want to talk. I love that. I love sitting at the kitchen table and talking with my children or sitting in the living room and talking with them, just spending time communicating with them. And so here was a young man that comes to his father, but he doesn't come to communicate with his father. He doesn't come to say to his dad, you know, Dad, I really appreciate all that you and Mom have done for me. He didn't come to say, you know, Dad, I want to tell you just how much I love you and I honor you for all the sacrifices that you made in my life. No, that's not why he comes to his father. He comes to his father in essence to say, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. Why don't you give me my inheritance now? Let me spend it now. I don't want to wait till you grow old and get sick and die and we have to read the will. And none of that. I want you to give me what I've got coming to me now. And I want you to know, my friends, that is rebellion. That is exactly what we're looking at. And young people today may not say that to a parent. They may not say to a parent, you know, I can't wait for you to die. Just go ahead and give me what I've got coming to me now. They may not, well, some might, but many may not use that sort of terminology, but I'll tell you what they will do. What they will do is say to a parent, you know what, I didn't ask to be born into this family. I didn't ask to have the parents that I've got, and I didn't ask to have all these restrictions, and I didn't have, ask to have all this curfew, and I didn't ask to have all of these problems that I have in this family, and I'll tell you what, I'm leaving. When I turn 18, I'm out of here, and I'm not coming back again. That is rebellion. It's the same attitude this boy had with his father that we're studying about in Luke chapter 15. That is rebellion, pure and simple rebellion. This boy said, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm gone, and I, I, you know what? As, as far as the record goes, he may not have had any interest in coming back. I remind people today, and I, I tell you what, I make no bones about it. I remind young people today that, you know what, if you want to live a rebellious life, God will let you choose to do that. He will allow you to make choices when you're 14, 15, or 16 years old, or even 18 or 9, whatever. God will let you make choices that will destroy your life if that's what you want to do. And God will let you make choices that not only will destroy your life, but will destroy your health, destroy your relationships, and eventually destroy your souls if that's what you want to do. You can do it. God is not going to reach down from heaven and grab you by the nape of your neck and keep you from making foolish choices. God is saying if you want to rebel, that's your choice. You just go ahead and do it. Here was a boy that wanted to leave home, and God didn't stop him. His father didn't stop him. Reminds me of what the proverb writer says in Proverbs chapter 30. and verse 11, he says, There's a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. You know, the Bible says that young people are to honor father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you'll live long on the earth. But now we read there's a generation that doesn't do this. They have no respect and they have no regard for what the parents do and what the parents are. 
and what their parents have provided. There's a generation that does not bless its mother and even curses its father. Look at verse 12. There's a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. Pure in its own, you know, self-deceived. Uh, a, a generation that is uh, self-serving, a generation that just simply throws off all the archaic ways of the old. We can do it better. We're smarter. We're, we, we're better equipped. And you know what? Here's a, you got somebody 16, 17, 18 years old telling you how to parent because they're self-deceived. They're pure in their own eyes. There's a generation, verse 13. Oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. They throw off the morals and the mores of the old generation. That's just too old-fashioned. We're not like that anymore. We think different. Well, that's what he's talking about here. And he's talking about those who choose to make decisions that go counter to what their parents taught them. But he says, if you do that, I want you to notice what verse 17 says. The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. You know what he's saying? He's saying you will reap what you sow. If you're going to dance, you're going to have to pay the piper. You're going to suffer the consequences of the choices that you make. I held a meeting down in central Kentucky a number of years ago. And the little building that had about the, size, about the size of this building here, and they sat right on Main Street in the town where I was holding this meeting. And people would walk down the sidewalk, and sometimes people would walk in off the street when they had a gospel meeting going on and come in, and that's great. That's a wonderful thing. Well, I got a call before I went down and held that meeting, and one of the brothers was telling me, or really alerting me to a young man in the area. He calls me and he says, J.R., I want to tell you about Ben. I said, okay. And so he got to telling me about Ben. I'll share that with you in a moment. One night while I was up preaching, doors to the foyer flew open and in walked a young man in his well, mid to late 20s, I guess. And he was uttering something as he came in. I couldn't understand him. I was up here, and I, I'm not sure anybody could understand him because it wasn't making any sense. His words were just kind of, you know, just thrown out there, no continuity. And he started walking down the, down the aisle toward where I was preaching, and he started holding his hands up like this. And he got up here pretty close to me, and he was uttering something. He was crying, slobber running out of his mouth all down on his collar. His shirt was all disheveled as well as his hair. And, and, and finally some of the brothers come and, and, and took him and walked him into a back room and, and sort of calmed him down. Well, let me tell you the story of Ben. When Ben was about 15, 14, 15 years old, he and some of his buddies liked to go down to the Ace Hardware store and they'd go in and they'd steal these cans of clear spray paint. And then they'd go down to the high school behind the, behind the gymnasium and they'd take an old dirty ball sock and they'd just fill that ball sock up with all of that paint and then they'd just start sucking it down into their lungs and they'd get high. 
doing that. And that was a neat thing to do, and that was cool, and they were getting by with a lot of stuff. But the other guys, you know, they quit. Ben liked it. He kept on. And now Ben, in his late 20s, he can't even have a relationship with God. He can't have a relationship with his family because of the choice that he made. And now he's going to have to live the rest of his life in that condition and face God in judgment because of the choices that he made. Yeah, the ravens will pluck out your eyes if that's what you choose to do. And that's what I try to tell people. If you decide that you're going to rebel, then you're going to have to suffer the consequences. God says you will have to pay. I want you to notice what what is said in the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, you know, as Solomon winds down, or chapter 11, as he winds down his, uh, his search for the meaning of life, he said in verse 9 of Ecclesiastes 11, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Now he gives a caveat. Now, there's something you need to know. But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. I got to, I, I, I have to step away right now for just a moment talking about the prodigal son. I want to say something about this boy's daddy. You know, there's several things about this. And I recognize that what's, who's represented in the younger son and the older son and the father represents God. I understand that. But I'm looking at this from the standpoint of, uh, of an earthly father. There are two things about this man that I admire. First thing that I admire about this man is that he, learned, he knew something that many of us have failed to learn. He, learned, he knew that Rebellion begins in the heart, and I'm pointing to my head because that's the Bible heart. It, it, it begins right here before it ever manifests itself in action. And so as a result of that, he was not willing to amend his values to keep a rebel at home. I'm going to say that again because I want, I, I want us to think about that very seriously. This daddy was not willing to lower his standard of morality in order to keep a rebellious young person at home. Because that boy had already left in his mind. As we see in verse 13, it was a few days later before he actually leaves bodily. And I'm going to tell you something, parents. All the tears that you can cry and all the promises that you can make and all the incentives that you can give, and all the compromises that you can offer, will not change a rebellious heart one bit. That's why I tell parents how wrong it is to say to a child, well, listen, if you're going to have sex before you get married, well, you need to have safe sex, and you know what? You just need to come home and do it at home, or I'll provide you with a hotel room. No. Shame on any parent that will have an attitude like that. Shame on any parent that will say, you know what, if little John is going to drink, I want him to drink at home and not out somewhere on the house. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Godly parents cannot lower their values to keep a rebel at home. 
If you're going to live this way with your harlots, you're going to live this way with your prostitutes and the way that you're living, you're going to have to take that out here. You're not going to do that at home. Your mother and I don't live that way, and we're not going to allow you to live that way. If, you, if that's what you choose to do, you're going to have to do it somewhere else. And the second thing that I admire about this father, before I step back into talking about the prodigal, second thing I admire about him is he was willing to let this boy suffer the consequences of his decision. He didn't go clean up after him. He didn't send a servant out there and follow him around, make sure that he had plenty to eat. He didn't do that. He let this boy suffer the consequences, get down in a pigsty, and I admire that. We'll talk a little bit more about that during the course of this study. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs 13 and verse 15, the way of the unfaithful is hard. Yes, it is. But sometimes parents want to make it smooth. Don't do that. If a child is going to rebel, let him or her suffer the consequences of his rebellion or her rebellion. That doesn't mean that you don't love them. This father loved that boy. That's obvious when a boy comes home. father had been looking for him. But let's move on. What did I say my second point was going to be? He came to his father. Now we see he comes to a far country. Verse 13. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together. That's all that his daddy had given to him and all that he accumulated. He gathered it all together, journeyed to a far country. And I'll tell you, he got busy while he was there. And, wa and there wasted his possessions with prodigal or wasteful living. Look carefully. If you've got your Bibles out and looking at that verse, look very carefully at that verse. And when you see the exact location where that boy went, raise your hand. Not there, is it? It didn't say that he went to Babylon. It didn't say that he went to Alexandria, Egypt. It didn't say that he went to Rome. It didn't say that he went to Athens. It just simply said he went to a far country. And I always find that interesting. And the reason that I find it interesting, ladies and gentlemen, is because you don't have to travel to Paris or you don't have to travel to Brussels or you don't have to travel to Las Vegas or New Orleans to be in a far country. Because a far country is not measured geographically on a map somewhere. A far country is measured in how far you travel from God. What is it Jesus said in Matthew 15 and verse 8? He said, they honor me with their lips, but where is their heart? It is far from me. That's how you measure a far country. How far one has drifted or gone from God. And I've got to tell you something. There are a lot of people, a lot of young people even, attending churches of Christ, who have well-respected parents, who are able to memorize Bible verses, who are able to participate in, in, in church activities. But you know what? While their bodies are here doing this, that, and the other, their mind and their heart is drifting far and far away from God. And you know what? We adults don't even know. We adults don't even have the wisdom to see what's happening to our own young people. They're drifting far and far away from God. And then you know what? 
when they get married or when they go off to college or they go to another town to get a job, then we begin to hear, you know, they're not going to church. We begin to hear that they're involved in things that we didn't raise them to become involved with, and we scratch our head and we wonder what's happened. Well, what happened was, while they were still under our care, they were drifting far and far away from God. Their hearts were leaving God. They were in a far country. I, 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 you know what? Parents, we need to start reading some body language, and we need to start listening to things that are said. And we need, to, we need to pay attention to what our young people are telling us insofar as their actions are concerned. When I talk about body language, you know, when I, 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 I teach young people's classes, I, I, I can tell when a young person has turned me off. I can tell, I mean that quick, when, when what I'm saying is not resonating in any way, shape, manner, or form, the body language is there. The twisting in the seats, the grunting, the rolling of the eyes, and all of these things. Parents, this goes on in our households. And we're not paying the least bit of attention to that. This boy was in a far country. I said, you know, you can't measure that geographically on a map. I'll tell you what it represents, though. I, I, you know, if I were to say, well, you know, even though you don't measure it on a map, it has to do with an attitude or distance from God... I'll tell you what it really does. It, 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 it suggests the erroneous idea of freedom or liberty. Not having any rules or restrictions. Being able to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I wish to do it, however I wish to do it, without anybody hovering over me, telling me, yes, no, don't, maybe think about this. None of that. Just free to do my own thing. That's a far... You know, that, that, that sounds appealing. It, it's, it, you know, it, but it promises something that's impossible. You know, you cannot possibly live without some sort of restriction. You can't live without some sort of rule. You cannot live without some sort of guideline some sort of boundary. It's just impossible. You take, for example, decide that you want to eliminate all the laws of sanitation and just start getting your drinking water out of the sewer or go into a toilet somewhere and start washing your face. You just set aside all of the all of the laws of sanitation, and it won't be long till you develop typhoid or something a whole lot worse because you can't live in violation to the laws of sanitation and expect to exist very long. Laws of gravity. Hey, how about that? Go down here in Savannah and find you a big old tall building and decide that, you know, I've had it up to here with this law of gravity, and I'm going to defy the law of gravity. It's not going to tell me that I can't fly anymore, and I'll just step off this building. You see, what happens? They'll call the people in the white coats to come out with a big old snow shovel and just dig you, up, dig you up off the street. You cannot defy the laws of gravity without killing yourself. And this is the way it is with the laws of God. You cannot live defying the laws of God without destroying yourself, either in your life or especially in your eternal life. It's not, you, you can't do it. It's an impossibility. It, it's just not, not, not happening. Let, let me, I, I, I want to show you 
a passage here over Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 19. But before I do that, let me tell you a story. It has to do with my younger sister who has since passed on. We weren't raised by Christian parents in any way, shape, manner, or form. None of, none of us were. I didn't become a Christian until I was married with two children. But when I was raised, my father and mother would often take us down. I was raised in Louisville, Kentucky. We'd, we'd go down on both the Indiana side and the Kentucky side, the Ohio River. We had some relatives that had what we called camps. And we'd go down there, and the adults would play horseshoes and pinochle, and the kids would just run around in the cane break, swim in the river, just do all kinds of things. Well, the, 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 the adults would have these coolers of beer. And they'd sit around drinking beer while they were playing pinochle or horseshoes. And, and we kids, we'd have soft drinks. But, you know, at that time, the orange crush soft drink bottle was brown just like a beer bottle. And my sister and I, some of our cousins, well, we'd take those, we'd, we'd take those orange crust bottles, and after we drank the orange crust, we'd rinse them out, and we'd go steal a beer out of the adults' cooler. And we'd go out here, and we'd pour that beer in those orange crush bottles, and we'd just walk around right in front of the adults drinking that beer. We thought we were, the, we thought that was the neatest thing ever was. We're pulling one over on the adults. Nobody knows about this, and we were doing that as kids. Well, let me tell you what happened. My sister, two years younger than myself, became a raging alcoholic. She died of stage four liver cancer after suffering with cirrhosis of the liver for a number of years. And it all began with us being so cool there drinking that beer. And I, I, and I set that up to say what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 19, while they promised them liberty... They themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also is he brought into bondage. You don't know bondage until sin begins to reign in your mortal body. I remember taking my sister to a rehab center, trying to get her dried out. And I'm standing there with her, and she's sitting in a chair, and they asked her, said, Mrs. Kennedy, so what is it that you drink? She said, anything I can get my hands on, including rubbing alcohol. But it all started with that one drink. God will not keep you from making those choices. You can go into a far country, and you can waste your life living in that far country. And that's what this boy was doing. But let's go to point number three. Point number three is, now he came to be in need. Look at verse 14. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want or in need. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. And notice that. I wonder how many of those people that turned their back on him, how many of them were just flocking all around him as long as he had his money. As long as the money was holding up, you know, he had all kinds of friends. But let the money run out, and so do the friends. Reminds me of when my boy was 16 years old. We was living in Hendersonville, Tennessee. 
and he wanted to buy a car. He was working in an apartment complex and saved his money. And one of the men, members of the church there, Brother Joe Garrison, had a he, he, he had an old 72 Volkswagen. And my son wanted to buy that Volkswagen. And he did. He bought that Volkswagen. I, I agreed to let him buy it. He bought that Volkswagen. And I told my wife one day, I said, I didn't know you could fit that many kids in a Volkswagen. I'd hear him coming through the neighborhood, and there'd be kids with arms and legs hanging out the windows, and they'd putt-putting over to the house, and they're all playing basketball at the house. That phone was ringing off the hook. Dwayne, let's do this. Dwayne, let's do that. Let's go up to Dairy Queen. Let's go up here and do... And you know what? There was kids over there all the time while school started. And he'd come in from school, and, and uh, uh, I, I said, Boy, don't you have any homework? No. They quit giving homework at school? Well, I get it done in the mornings. I, be, I get it done, you know, uh, before. I said, well, listen, I'm going to tell you something right now. I said, if your grades fall off, I said, you're going to park that Volkswagen. You're not going to drive it anymore. Well, I come in. Hey, you know what he said? Hey, Dad, don't worry. I got this. You ever had that? Famous last word. Don't worry. I got this. Okay, got this. I come in one day, and he sat at the table, and I said, what in the world's the matter with you? He stands up and he hands me his grade card and his car keys. <laughs> Parked that little red Volkswagen in the driveway. But something interesting happened. The phone quit ringing. Kids quit coming over. Because the reason for their being friends with him was now parked in the driveway. Now, if we can understand that, that really happened. We get the picture here. This boy's money run out, and so did his friends. This boy's money run out, and all of those people who thought he was the finest thing since the wheel now walked away from him. And this is how it is in a far country. It looks good until the money runs out. It looks promising until the friends walk away from you after the money runs out. No one, absolutely no one cared for this boy. They didn't care. They, they spent his money, and they didn't care. When he hit bottom, they didn't care for him. Now he's on his own. You know what? Young people who know where they can buy their drugs or they know where they can buy their booze, and every place... I don't care whether it's here or where I live near Kansas City, Missouri, wherever it is. Young people who want to get these things know where to go get them. And I'm going to tell you something. If you know where you can buy your bootleg liquor or your drugs or whatever, if something happens to you and you get out here on I-16 and you wrap your car around an embankment somewhere, I'm going to tell you, the person that sold you that, they're not even going to care. It's going to be your mom and your dad that's crying and, and going bankrupt to pay for your medical bills or your funeral. And the same is true with tobacco products. Yeah, you can go out here and you can buy tobacco products, either smoking tobacco or, or, or smokeless tobacco, and I'll tell you what, Put a pinch between your cheek and gum, and when your lip falls off due to oral cancer, R.J. Reynolds will not spend a dime on you. They don't care. Because the reason for caring is gone, and that was the money you were given to them. People in a far country don't care. It, the only ones that care are those who gave you life 
and those who trained you and those who raised you. They're the ones who care for you. But as the proverb writer says, a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Yeah, it's mama who grieves and the other people are just laughing. Oh, did you hear what happened? So and so, that guy's stupid. This boy's in a far country. He came to need. And then he begins some self-evaluation here. And the Bible teaches us that finally he came to himself. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Before commenting on that, let me, I want to ask you a question. I'm not asking for any audible response. I just want you to mull this over in your mind just a little bit. Verse 17 says, but when he came to himself. My question to you this afternoon is, why did the prodigal son come to himself? Why did he come to himself? And you know what? I would be willing to say that most of you would give the stock answer that I used to give. And that stock answer goes something like this. Well, he came to himself when he found himself in a pig's pen. He was as low as he could go. And you can't get any lower than sitting out there with the hogs and wanting to eat the slop that the hogs was eating. That's pretty low. And when you get that low, you'll come to yourself. No, that's not why he came to. All of those things are true. He got about as low as you could get, and he was willing to eat the food that the hogs were eating, but nobody gave it to him. That's the reason he came to himself. Look at the last sentence of verse 16. And when no man gave to him. Parents, we need to hang that where we can see it. When you stop enabling sinful behavior that will cause someone to come to himself. But as long as you funnel that, as long as you support that, as long as you endorse that, then they'll never come to themselves. Got to cut them off. Got to cut it off. This boy came to himself. And that was a turning point in his life. He said, you know, I don't have to live here like that anymore. I can't, I, you know, I'm not going to live this way any longer. I'm going home. And if dad and mama have me, I'm going back home. And I'm going to tell Dad just exactly what I feel, that I can't live like this any longer. And I'll tell you, we, you know, that, that's what young people who are rebels need. They need to come home, both to family and to God. They don't need, you know, we don't need to build bigger and better pig pens for them to live in a park. No, that's not it. What they need is redemption and rehabilitation and restoration to Christ Jesus. They need his blood. They need to be made aware of how pitiful their condition is and how lost that they are. This boy came to himself. And finally, he came home. Now that's back where the story began. Let's look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. That shows me how much the dad loved the boy. And ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. 
and am no longer worthy to be called your son. You know, he said exactly what he went over in his mind that he was going to say. But now notice the father's response in verse 22. And the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. Hey, we're going to have a party. We're going to rejoice. We're going to have a party because this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Look at the love, the festivity, and the warmth. The journey's over the boy's home. Now, we're not talking about the older brother. That's a whole other story and a good one at that. But this boy come in, and you know what he did? He confessed. He owned it. He didn't come in and say to his father, You know what, Dad? If you'd have been a better parent, this wouldn't have happened. Mm -mm. He didn't come in and say to his dad, Well, I'll tell you what, Dad. I am no worse than that hypocrite son of yours out there in the field. Mm -mm. He didn't say that. He, he, he didn't come in and, and say something like, Well, you know, Dad, everybody makes mistakes, and this was a big mistake that I made. Mm-mm. He owned it. He stepped up and he said, you know, I did it. I made this choice. I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. If you'll let me come back, I'll muck out the stalls in your barn, Dad. And Dad was having none of that. And I, th I love what the father didn't say, too. The father didn't look that boy in the eye and say, how dare you come back home? after you drug our name through the mud and after you humiliated your mom and me among all of our neighbors, nah, don't you show up back. Uh-uh. That's not what the father did. The father said, come on home, son. You, you just come on home. You, you were dead, but, but now you're alive. You, you were lost, but, but now you're found. What a homecoming that was. Rebellion is its own reward. Alienation from family and alienation from God. And that's why I tell people, the beautiful thing about the gospel is God is always calling the prodigal home. It's a great story. It is a story of rebellion. It is a story that I believe resonates with every loving parent and every teenager. As we close, would you join with me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you so much that you've allowed us the time to study from the word that you and your love has given to us. And we pray, Father, that we've been made better by study of that word. And we pray that the things that you have said and your word has reached deeply into the hearts of each one of us here today. That we can live our lives in a way that's not rebellious, but in a way that's pleasing to you. And you will not be ashamed to own us as your children. Continue with us in our service this afternoon, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.